Hello, my name is Jason Fry. And I'm Kirk Carnot. And this is the debut episode of Worlds of the Imaginary. So basically, this podcast is about works of science fiction. And today we are focusing on the works of H.G. Wells. The first novel we will be discussing is The Time Machine. And this is an important book, Jason, because it, in effect, kicks off the genre. It's considered one of the foundational texts of science fiction, and also really the first one to explore the theme of time travel, which has become probably one of the two or three most basic plot lines in science fiction. So let me just start out by asking you a question. Yes, sir. What is it about time travel that attracts us? I think really that time travel has been a fun subplot for many stories that have interested uh, adults and children alike, to be honest. I originally read this novel when I was 12 years old. So that was really the starting point of my interest in science fiction. And I think H.G. Wells, effectively him being considered the father of modern science fiction, I think it really played a key role in my interest in science fiction. Well, he was, uh, this This is the book that essentially jump-started his career. I think he was all of 25 or 26 or 27 when he wrote and published this book, yes. and it was a very popular book at the time. It's also an important book because it is a dystopian science fiction novel. And that means that the vision we see of the future is not a chipper one. (laughs) I would agree with you, Jason, that uh, I think part of the appeal of time travel is that it allows us to think that we as we have some control over both the future and the past that in a sense that we could rewrite history or that we could rewrite the, f- the future. I'll just say that probably for me, the biggest image I've ever had of the power to control time was uh, the famous Superman comic where Lois Lane gets killed and <laughs> Superman flies counterclockwise around the earth to go back in time. And I remember being a kid and thinking, wow, that would be very cool if you could actually go back in time. Mentioning uh, that Superman novel, the first time I actually saw that action was in the movie. Ah, <laughs> so I think that's a indication of my age that I did not read as many novels when I was younger. <laughs> but that was the first time I saw that. We do have a bit of an age difference on this show, so <laughs> but so that's to be expected at a sense. Although. We are going to talk about some similar interests in science fiction that we've we discovered in planning the show that we have. I believe so. But let's get back to H.G. Wells. What uh, tell us a little bit about Wells, Jason, and what uh, what specifically might have inspired him to write this novel? Um, so H.G. Wells was born in 1866, a very very long time ago, a few miles from London. And I believe uh, the main reason for him becoming such a prominent author is the fact that, like me, he was not a very outdoorsy person. And because of his um, medical condition, he was inside a lot. And so they mentioned that H.G. Wells did a lot of reading as a child, and it led him to begin to 
write novels and he began to write science fiction novels because of his great imagination. And so that led up until he was 27 years old when he wrote and published his first work, which was The Time Machine. And he actually did not use the term science fiction. He had an interesting term. I believe it was science romance. Was that right? Yes, yes. Scientific romance novel. What do you think that term means? And how is that? Is that any different than what we think of as science fiction today? I don't think it really is. I think it's just the fact that he did not quite have the certain term that seemed more interesting with him mentioning scientific romance. I think really with the mention of romance and how romance is normally the attraction between two people, I think scientific romance was basically his way of expressing his love for the imagination and imaginary worlds and things that we may not believe are true. And so when he wrote The Time Machine, they considered a scientific romance novel. But as time progressed, he became the father of uh, modern science fiction. Yes, and probably the most famous thing that we associate with H.G. Wells is the, the War of the Worlds. It's a testament to Wells's imagination and his ability to make scientific romance convincing that Orson Wells was able to adapt that into a script and so many people believed it was real. And I and I do think that that's one of the fun things about Wells's fiction. A lot of times when I read science fiction, you know, I'm sort of whenever we're flying off to the next planet or whatever, I'm always like, okay, this this feels a little <laughs> unreal, but there I think the best science fiction does tie us down to a sense of what is probable or to what we can imagine being likely. Yes, sir. And that's maybe part of the tension there that gives us a little bit of anxiety. I I agree. So Wells writes this novel, and I'm kind of curious, what what do you think he's saying about the vision of the future? Uh, I know this is not really mentioned until until he reached the body of the story, but he mentions the two... Uh, races of creatures that he believed evolved from humans and uh, we could go into that later but his description of it and how he explores the way they live I really think it's a testament to the class systems that we may have in our current society and how it may end up leading us into a future where we don't really coincide anymore. That's a great way of putting it. One of the fun things about Wells is he's what we would today maybe call a high concept writer in that he takes a specific theory or a specific kind of scientific notion and he dramatizes the consequences of it. So partly what he's dealing with here is the Darwinian theory of evolution. And he's looking at what the future holds if Victorian England were to evolve on the path that it was on in the 1890s. And so I think you're exactly right that he he talks about the class system. Let's talk about these two races because they're very, very different races. So our unnamed time traveler crash lands 800,000 years in the future. Is that right? Yes. I have to I always have to look at the decimal point and make sure it's 800,000 or 80,000. I get confused. The exact date he recorded was 802,701 AD. That's a long way into the future. (laughs) 
<laughs> very long way into the future. So the first race that he he encounters are what are they called? The Eloy. They are, uh, I, I believe he said, around four feet tall and very fragile creatures. They're also indolent and docile. What do you what do you think he's critiquing there? Uh, so he mentions that they were clothed in, I believe he said, a strange. Um, and soft yet strong silk fabric. And so he mentions how they live in greatly uh, built structures. So I believe that he may be alluding to the fact that they're richer, right? Uh, in a sense, or, or sort of a more wealthy race of creatures. And I think part of what's going on is he he's sort of saying that prosperity makes is going to make human beings indolent, a lazy even. These, this is not a race of people that are survivalists. They kind of get by. And they're also, right. I think, very frightened, very inefficient. So part of what he's critiquing here as well is prosperity. But I also think he's critiquing communism because part of what he's talking about in this society is that everything among them is equal. There's no sense of competition. They live off of each other, split everything equally. And he sees, I think, that race as not having any of the individuality that that is going to drive um, innovation or evolution. I know one thing that he mentions that he doesn't really see a structure uh, that you would find in a family and how the Eloi have evolved to where you really see no differences in gender um, of the Eloi and how uh, all of them basically have the same roles and they're fragile, frail, frightened, and they really don't uh, seek to find innovation. I know he mentions that they live in older structures, that they're still standing, but at the same time, they you can tell they were weather worn. That's a great point. And I think that, you know, it's interesting today, you could argue that this, uh, that his vision of the future is the idea of a, of a society that is entirely equal, makes everybody sort of the same and blots out, you know, all kinds of roles. And it's maybe in those roles where we find a, a sense of purpose or a sense of, a sense of drive. And, and with this seeming to uh, have a lot of points that point to politics. I think one thing that I uh, found humorous is the fact that when he sees the Eloy and how they carry themselves and he mentions, he thinks himself, hmm, communism, and that it truly destroyed what could have been a uh, greater society than what they had um, in that time. It's interesting because I think that, uh, you know, Wells's politics, he was pretty far left. I mean, he he was involved in a lot of socialist movements and stuff. But I think that uh, he was also wary of the extreme of socialism, which is communism. And of course, the communism we're talking about is pre-Bolshevik revolution. You know, this is long before the USSR, 20 years or so. So it's it's a different it's a a more European um, sense of uh, of communism, the collective, more Marxian, I guess, than we would think of as being Leninist. 
What uh, what are the the so we have the Eloy and then what's the other race that we deal with? Uh, the Morlocks. Um, he mentions that they are nocturnal, actually, that they normally do not come out in the day, and that they have evolved to, or we could really say, if we're speaking on uh, the Darwinistic theory of evolution, is that they've truly devolved and have um, retrieved some of their traits um, that relate to apes. And he mentions that their eyes are much smaller and weaker than the Eloy and that the light actually hurts their eyes that he has noticed uh, through observation. And they live in these deep wells that eventually the time traveler has to descend into in order to try to get back to the, to his time machine uh, so he can get back to his own world. Um, what do what do you think the the Morlocks symbolize then? Sadly, I think the Morlocks really represent the uh, backbone of many countries. I think that he um, relates the Morlocks to the working class and how he mentions that um, on the Eloy side, they really share everything. They have garments of uh, beautiful silk, but then he mentions that the Morlocks are more uh, rugged and animalistic race of creatures and that they live underground operating ancient machines. And so I think that that really is a testament to the working class and how the working class tends to live in less favorable uh, living spaces. And and essentially, I think what he's arguing is that for the Eloy to be able to enjoy the luxury and privileges that they have, sort of the prosperity and the indolence that they are known for, it takes this whole other race in order to be able to to produce for them. And to me, one of the most surprising things about the book is that he talks about the um, the fear that the Eloy have of the Morlocks. Do you want to explain that a little bit? So... He mentions in the novel, the first night he spends with the Eloy is the fact that once it starts to get dark, that they all gather together, go into one room in a uh, giant facility and they begin to sleep together and that they all seem too afraid to come out at night. And he goes on to explain that the Morlocks are nocturnal and that the Morlocks, even though they essentially provide the food and clothing of the Eloy, they still eat the Eloy, that they will capture an Eloy and actually take them to these underground tunnels and consume them. The Morlocks in Wells's original audience provoked this fear that I think a lot of, a lot of uh, Europeans had of, of other nations as being cannibals. And, um, you know, that's kind of a tantalizing, a weird kind of tantalizing thing that pops up in in a lot of science fiction there's a connection there to uh, jonathan swift even going back a little further to the to the to a couple hundred years earlier um one of the things that strikes me in this novel is it, it does something that later time travel novels are gonna make a you know it's gonna borrow the plot of but the time traveler hooks up with um, a female Eloy who becomes kind of his companion or sidekick. And I think in more contemporary romances <laughs> that, that, 
that are more contemporary science fiction. I just gave away where I was going with this question. Usually some sort of romantic relationship that develops between the time traveler and the, <laughs> and the woman figure. And, it, and she becomes something that he as a hero has to protect. But that element is totally not in this novel. So what is what do you think Weena's role in this book is? Honestly, that is something I feel is is truly for me still confusing and left up for interpretation. A lot of people have said that they think that she was just that supporting character um that the story called for, but I think that if you think deeper that Weena may have actually represented something more to the time traveling and they mentioned that after he saves her from drowning, that she essentially follows him around and showers him with flowers and brings him food as a way of showing her appreciation for the time traveler. It's a weird subplot in there that you it never really makes clear why it's in there. <laughs> but there is a connection, I think, to a lot of colonial narratives in which uh, I was thinking of a novel by Herman Melville called Typey which takes place in Polynesia in the 1830s or 40s, I can't remember, but he basically goes there and uh, he's such an exotic figure as a white man to all these Polynesian women that they uh, essentially fall in love with her and he becomes kind of a weird king to them. And that's, I think he's playing with that a little bit. You know, we were talking about the connection between the, the, the time machine and a um, one of the classics of science fiction that you and I are both fans of, which is planet of the apes, basically <laughs> planet of the apes. And we were talking about the fact that in the original planet of the apes, the original movie with Charlton Heston and uh, that there is the character of Nova, which is the, um, you know, in the movie, she's basically running around in a loincloth and but does not have the ability to speak and charlton heston who's what's the character that he plays again um i believe his name was george taylor in the story george taylor captain taylor major taylor i can't remember his rank but um he becomes her protector and of course she's in that final scene in the original planet of the apes where he discovers the great moment of cinema history where he discovers that the <laughs> planet that he is on is the earth of the future is earth and the movie ends with him you know swearing you did it you know you destroyed the world um that well uh wells's time traveler knows he's on earth from the beginning so we don't have that sense of a dramatic reveal but um you know i think ween is just one of those opportunities that uh comes up in the novel but his interests are totally not with that sort of protector figure or that romance and it's almost like his time traveler is uh maybe an anthropologist almost he's just kind of noticing or taking characteristics of these species and and for what they say about the future i, I agree uh i think that uh, i think another reason why the character of lena is in the story is that she sort of brings a sense of happiness to the time traveler in a sense, especially with him being stranded nearly a million years in the future. I think someone like that could use a little bit of a uh, 
pick-me-up, a lot of people would say. So I think that Weena really plays, I would say, an essential part in the story because she's in the story for an extended period of time. And she is the closest thing to a human being that he encounters in the future. So maybe Wells is suggesting that there is some little bit of hope, although at the end it's it's not a, a, a realized one. Um, let's take a step back, though, because the story is is wrapped in a way that was very typical of 19th century stories. It uses a what we would call a storytelling frame or a frame narrative. So the first two chapters really set up the time traveler's adventures. What what do we get out of that frame narrative? We start with a narrator who is not our not the time traveler. He's not the time traveler. He's not really the narrator. He's not really the narrator. So what is what is that there for, and what does it do? How does it contextualize the story? For me, I think that H.G. Wells really didn't want to originally narrate the story using the character of the time traveler. I think he wanted to sort of uh, use a character that gives the reader a view of themselves as if they were in the story and as if they were listening to the story of the time traveler. And so I think that it's really just a way to give us a sort of first person perspective um, in the story through the narrator. That's an excellent way of putting it. I, I agree completely because the narrator is supposed to be the reader. And of course, there are other people gathered around the table hearing about this who object to the time travelers sort of claims and they're all identified by their professions. One is the psychologist and, you know, there are other people who represent other types of science, I guess we would say. The one random character who did not, uh, who was not recognized by his occupation, but was just rather considered the young man, which I found to be funny uh, at that point in the story. Why did you think that was funny? I, I really, for me, I think that just come from me reading it when I was so young. And so to read the story and to see the editor, the psychologist, and to him to mention the provincial mayor, and then just randomly he says the young man yeah, and never mentions whether he's a student or um, anything of that nature. So I just found that to be funny. But going back and reading the novel now that I'm a little bit older, it's not as humorous for me well and of course the ending is a i mean it's a killer ending of the novel because it really (laughs) it's a bit of a gut punch actually um but it's a great twist ending uh so uh, and i don't think we're giving anything away uh by telling how the novel ends because it's an important part of the story (laughs) but basically what happens at the end jason the time traveler returns to tell his story and so he uh, tells his story to everyone and he mentions that the time machine could be used again for time travel. And he goes on to begin the um, repairing process for the time machine. And the narrator of whom we could honestly assume would be us, the reader, uh, goes back to the mansion of the time traveler to speak with him. And the time traveler has a camera and a knapsack. And he mentions to the narrator to give him 30 minutes to leave and come back and he would bring evidence, he would bring solid evidence, a specimen and photographs. 
And so he leaves. And at the end of the story, the narrator mentions that the time travel has now been gone for three years. It's been three years since the first meeting at the dinner table and the time traveler has not returned. So clearly the time traveler has been lost to time. And, um, you know, it, it's one of those ways that I think in most subsequent time travel narratives that the time traveler ends up being able to go back to his or her time or, you know, in the ones that are more romance novels in which usually a time traveler falls in love with somebody of the future or somebody of the past, they come to that other person's era and adapt to it and learn to live in it. Um, but this one really gives us a sense of the, I mean, it, it ends on a note that's meant to, I think, strike terror into the heart of the reader in a lot of ways about what you know, what happens to us if we <laughs> did possess this amazing talent to, to travel through time? Um, but what happened if we couldn't make our way back? I agree. And I know that um, he mentions, and something that I thought of the narrator mentions at the end of the book is that he believes that what if the time traveler went backwards in time and maybe fell a victim to a dinosaur randomly or mm -hmm. if he's traveled into the future before the time of the Eloy and the Morlocks where society has been perfected and he's basically joined them in this age of peace or if he has gone back to the time of the Eloy and the Morlocks and fallen victim to the Morlocks and so it's really left up for interpretation left up to your imagination really to decide what happened to the time traveler. i sort of jumped ahead a little bit because we failed to mention that after he leaves the Morlocks and the Eloy, he actually travels again into the future, but he ends up at the end of, Great. essentially at the end of time because he's at end the end of, time. of the world. And the vision there is even in some ways, um, I mean, it's so uh, unromantic. I mean, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's, basically there's snails and blobs are all that's left of life. And um, what do you, what point do you think he's making by revealing that vision of the end of evolution? Honestly, still very, uh, very odd. In my opinion, I, I really, that's something that I really still need to try and uh, think about his mention of how as time progresses and as he travels, further into time, how it gets darker. And Hyde mentions that the only thing that's able to survive are those giant crustacean creatures. And so really, I I really don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I think it's up for interpretation. One, one way to think about it is, you know, the Victorian age, it, it very different mindset from our own, even though many of the social ills are exactly the same. But you know, that philosophically, there were a lot of people at that time that wanted to believe in progressivism and that, and, you know, the idea that history was always evolving and would always evolve toward the better infinitely. And I think Wells just saw that as incompatible with real science. And, you know, if you take, if you take Darwinism to its extreme, there will be an end of time. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, there's the, so he's showing us the end of the world and basically saying there's a, there's a point where life will come to an end on earth. 
and come to an and, end. And the earth will come to an end. It sort of reminds me when I was a kid, I remember being taken to a planetarium and they showed us the sun. And the guy running the planetarium said, there will be a point where the earth burns up in the sun. And that freaked me out. <laughs> he said, we won't be here. It'll be a million years in the future. But even the idea that all of this around us, these books, these computers, all of these things that we have created in the long run. It's all temporary. <laughs> yeah, it's all temporary. It's all temporary. So it's a it's a horrific vision. And it almost brings us to question, do we want to know what the future holds? Or should we just be content to uh, believe in the believe in the present? I, I think so. I think that maybe another underlying message in the time machine is to uh, take advantage and cherish what we have now because we really don't know what the future holds. And so I think one, one thing that he mentions is that if you uh, really not even just the uh, Darwinistic theory, I think there are many other people who have many other different beliefs who believe that the world started with darkness and that it may in fact end in darkness. And so that's really a scary uh, situation to think about, especially once you read the end of the novel. I think that it really makes you think. And I think especially in this, I think that ending is so relevant to us today when we are in the face of a, uh, you know, environmental point of no return. If we don't be, if we don't address quickly climate change, we have put the planet in, in deep peril and, um, you know, life will not be sustainable as we know it. Um, and, and I think that's part of what he's dealing with there too. You know, this has been a hugely influential novel. It spawned all kinds of, uh, variations. Do you have any particular time traveling novels or tales that you yourself like? Time traveling. I think really this was the pinnacle for me. I think that the time machine was the perfect story. Um, that included time travel. I, I think many of the people in my generation and their parents have all seen the blockbuster movie Avengers in which they time traveled. But I think that really simply because of what H.G. Wells um, used in his story with the time machine, if you watch this movie, you can see a lot of elements that he used. I, I know they mentioned that when he time travels, once he comes back, but then when he time travels for the second time, he does not come back. And so they right. use that in the movie on how one of the characters time traveled for a second time. And then he didn't come back until he was an old man. And so I think yeah. that really, for me, I really haven't read any novels that truly delved into time travel the way the time machine did and use it so well. Um, except for that. But I know that there is one story that I read um, that mentioned a dystopian future in which humans lived in outer space. It was a novel by the name of Lark Light. Mm, okay. And the advancement of technology and how humans left Earth and basically lived on man-made planets um, in the future. And so I think that's that's a novel that I've read that I think would interest a lot of people who enjoy science fiction novels. 
I would recommend there's a, a great movie from 1979 that is actually about H.G. Wells and the time machine, time travel. It's called Time After Time. And the basic premise is that H.G. Wells travels into the, well, would have been the future at the time, into, 20, <laughs> into 20, late 20th century in order to capture Jack the Ripper. And it is a, it's based on a novel, but it's a very fun, entertaining um, um, movie. And uh, it, it plays a lot off of, 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 of the time machine. So it's, uh, it has a lot of appeal for fans of this novel. So I, I think the biggest question for me, um, after discussing the time machine, after reading the time machine, I think the one uh, instance in the story that has really stuck with me all these years and that I still ponder to this day is the fact that he did not use the time traveler's real name. And I think, in my opinion, that may have been H.G. Wells. I think the time travel was H.G. Wells. And I think rather than him, conspiracy theory, saying that he traveled through time, I think that it's basically his prediction of the future and how society may devolve and how the class system may end up ruining what could be a great society. So I think that really this time machine, even though it's a science fiction novel, I think it's just a prediction, his prediction, personal prediction of the future. I think that's a great point. And I, and, and I do agree with you completely. The idea that, uh, you know, there's significance in the fact that we don't name the time traveler. And I love the idea. It almost brings a little metafictional quality to it, to you suggesting that the time traveler is actually the author himself, H.G. Wells. I love that. Um, it's either uh, metaphorical and it's H.G. Wells, or maybe it was Bill Nye, the science guy, and he didn't want to mention his name. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, trademark and everything, copyright, <laughs> so he probably couldn't. Well, this has been a great first episode of Worlds of the Imaginary, and we will be, be back on a semi-regular basis whenever Jason and I get the urge to talk about uh, some sort of trip into <laughs> the world of science fiction or speculative fiction. Uh, do you have any, uh, Jason, let me ask you this. If you could go to any time past or in the future, when would you go? That is a very tough question to answer. I would say a time in the future, but at the same time, I don't know what will happen in the future, but I think that everyone can relate to this is even though we only have around three weeks left in this year, any time after 2020 would be a great time to travel to. <laughs> That's a great point. I think I I think in the future none of us will want to hop on the time machine and revisit this past year. <laughs> yeah, it's uh but uh you know the great thing about speculative fiction though is that it does give us an opportunity to get away from our own moment in time. And in some ways I've always thought that time travel is popular because it is a allegory or a metaphor of reading itself to where our imagination can take us anywhere we want to go 
in time or space. I agree. And that, and that uh, we are boundless at the end of the day. Maybe our bodies are tied into three dimensions. I agree. And, and his mention of the uh, fourth dimension being time and how our physical bodies may not be able to travel through time that our minds do. I really think it's his way of telling us that um, the imaginary uh, concept of time travel really opens the imagination and gives us sort of a world to create of our own um, when we think about what could possibly happen in the future. So I think that's really something to think about. Excellent. Well, that's a great note for us to end on then. So, (laughs) Jason, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about a novel that I had not read in a while. So I I very much (laughs) thank you for encouraging me to reread it. You're very welcome. Great insights. And uh, we will be back again on what's the title of our show, Jason? Worlds of the Imaginary. There we go. Until next time. Goodbye.